Thank you so much, Julie, and what a blessing it is to welcome you this morning to our nine o'clock service. It's a delight to see you in the new year and to welcome you in who are still watching online. It's such a blessing to have you join us as well. In 1982, I moved to Dallas, Texas to begin seminary, and I quickly learned that I was not ready for big city driving. In the first six months, I had three tickets. Uh, one of them totaled $100, which for a poor seminary student in those days was a lot of money. But I learned that if I went to two four-hour sessions of driving school, they would erase that $100 ticket, <clears throat> and so I signed up. Our instructor for those two sessions was a retired senior, and his wife had recently died. And as he introduced himself to us, this is what he said, I was married to my wife for 45 years. He said, I wish I could have another 45 years with the same woman. And I thought to myself, that was just about the sweetest compliment I had ever heard a man give his wife. And I don't remember anything he said uh, about driving at all. Watch out for me on the road. <laughs> but 39 years later, that compliment still rings in my ears. I was 24 years old. I didn't have a girlfriend. I had no prospects of marriage. I would not be married for another eight years. But I thought to myself, that's the kind of marriage that everyone would like to have. To have 45 years with your spouse and then wish that it could be 90 years, that is a marriage to aim for. Now, of course, that day as I sat there, this question came into my mind. What's the secret? How did you build such a successful marriage? And today, I want to begin a series in this new year on the subject of marriage that seeks to answer that question from God's Word. And this morning, uh, in this opening message that will take more than one week, I want us to return to Proverbs chapter 2 and starting at verse 17. And I want to bring a message entitled, What Solomon Says about God's plan for marriage. What Solomon says about God's plan for marriage. Now, as we begin this morning, I'm going to compare two verses with you. I'm going to compare Proverbs 2.17, and then I want you to turn with me to Malachi 2.14, because I want you to see something that is very significant as we look at what the Bible is teaching us. Now, Proverbs 2 is one of the first passages that warns us about the high cost of infidelity in marriage. And I want you to listen as I read verse 17 of Proverbs 2. Who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Now, notice three key words. Youth, companion, and covenant. Now, if you would, turn with me to Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. It's easy to find. It is right before Matthew. And I want to read for us verse 14. Malachi is also warning in this passage about the gravity 
of marital infidelity. And let me read for you what he says in verse 14 of Malachi 2. But you say, why does he not pay attention in the context to our offerings? Because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. I wonder how many this morning saw the same three words. Companion, youth, and covenant. Did you see those same three words? You know what these are? These are parallel passages. The only difference in the passages is in the context in Proverbs, the warning is against infidelity by the wife, whereas in Malachi, the warning is against infidelity by the husband. But the point that both passages are making is that the antidote to unfaithfulness in marriage is a call back to God's plan for marriage. Now, it is a mark of superior wisdom to distill profound truths in brief statements. And that's exactly what God has done with his plan for marriage. Just so we will not miss it, he has repeated it precisely a second time in Malachi. These three words distill for us what marriage is all about and what marriage is to be. And as we are going to see, these two verses remind us of another verse in Genesis, Genesis 2.24, which is the entire key text for marriage in the Bible. So would you just stop with me for just a moment? Look what God has done. At the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, in the very middle of the Bible in Proverbs, at the very end of the Old Testament, excuse me, in Malachi, God says, here is my plan for marriage. How good is God? How good is God? That he would make it so clear and so concise, and repeat it three times. Can you say it with me this morning? God is a good God. Now, you know what this tells me right off the bat? The secret to a strong marriage is God's plan. The secret to a strong marriage is God's plan. A number of years ago, I was at a men's conference where my old professor Howard Hendricks was preaching. This is what he said he had learned in his studies. Only six out of a hundred couples are fulfilled in their marriages. How staggering is that? How stunning is that? Six percent of all married couples are fulfilled in their marriages. And of course, the answer to that lack of fulfillment is God's plan. Now, here's a question that I have for all of us this morning who are married. Are you a part of that 6%? Are you in that group of 6% where you would say, my marriage is a fulfilling marriage? 
And if we cannot say yes this morning, somewhere along the way we have deviated from God's plan. It may not necessarily be us who have deviated. Perhaps it is our spouse who has deviated. My adopted grandmother one day said to me, my husband became so jealous that he would make all kinds of false accusations against me. She said it got to the point where it was impossible to live with him, and they lived apart from one another until the day that they both passed away. In that case, it was that husband who deviated from God's plan. But whenever our marriage is unfulfilling at some point, whether it's one or both, we have deviated from the plan of God. Now, here's the good news. The good news is we can return to God's plan, right? That's good news. But it's not easy. It is not easy. Marriage, always and ever, takes work. Now here's what we're learning today as we look at these three words in Proverbs and in Malachi, that the Bible is teaching us two things, the foundation of marriage and the nature of marriage. The foundation of marriage and the nature of marriage. I want to begin this morning by looking at the foundation of marriage, and we'll continue to look at that a little bit next week, and then we'll look at the nature of marriage. So let's look at the foundation of marriage first. Here's the foundation of your marriage and mine. It is a covenant relationship between husband, wife, and God. Let me say that again. The foundation of every marriage is a covenant relationship between husband and wife and God. Now let's just stop for a moment. What does the world say is the foundation for our marriages? What's the world say? Well, they say it's love, don't they? Marriage is based on love. They would say being in love is the foundation of your marriage. And obviously, love is very important. God calls both husband and wife to love each other. But here's the question. What happens when your love wavers, right? What happens when your love is betrayed? What happens on those days when your love is weak and it is not strong? Professor Hendricks that I mentioned a little earlier said that he and his wife never considered divorce. He said, murder, yes. <laughs> divorce, no, he said. And we all laugh at that. But every married couple knows here this morning, your love and marriage will be sorely tested. Sorely tested. And I don't want anyone to raise your hand, but how many have thought at times in your marriage, why did I do this? Those times come. And the foundation has to be firmer. There has to be something that keeps us strong when our love is weak. And what is it? 
Well, both of these texts that we looked at this morning tell us that when you get married, you enter a covenant relationship. Now, there's a little dispute here in Proverbs 2.17. Is this the covenant of marriage? Or is it the believer's covenant with God? And the passage could go either way. But the parallel text in Malachi that we read makes it very clear. He says, your wife by covenant. And as some of my professors have written, it is more likely that this is the marriage covenant made before God. By the way, there's a little, uh, little Bible principle here of interpreting the Bible. When there's one passage that you're looking at that is a bit unclear, and a parallel passage is very clear, which one do you go with? You let the clear interpret the unclear. And it seems as though that's going on here. It is clear in Malachi that it is the covenant of marriage, and so it appears that that's what Proverbs is talking about right here. Now, you know, as I think about this, when um, I used to think that a covenant was like a contract. And so I would read these verses and I would think, okay, this is talking about the contract of marriage. Boy, was I wrong. Boy, was I wrong. A covenant is far deeper, much more profound than a contract ever is. Let me share with you a little bit the difference between a contract and a covenant, and you'll see the profound difference. Contracts are made by an exchange of promises, but covenants are sworn by solemn oaths, vows, and those oaths are made to God. Contracts are limited by an exchange of property, I get this, you get that. But covenants are made by an exchange of life. I give you myself, you give me yourself. Contracts are based on self-interest and profit. What am I going to receive as a result of this contract? But covenants... They are made by self-giving and self-sacrificial love. And the interest is, what can I give in this covenant? Contracts are often secular. God is often not involved in a contract that we are a part of, but covenants are always sacred because God is involved. And then... Contracts are temporary. They can end. When the contract is over, it's all finished. But covenants, they are permanent. And only God can end a covenant. Now one more thing this morning. A marriage covenant was called a kinship covenant. A kinship covenant. And when you get married, according to the Bible, you are considered blood relations and relatives of each other. 
All of us know from watching the movies when two people entered into a blood covenant and mixed blood, they from that day forward called themselves blood brothers. And in the marriage covenant, it is the mixing of bodily fluids in the sexual relationship that brings us and seals that kinship covenant. Do you know it takes two things to start a marriage? Number one, it takes a public commitment with vows. And number two, it takes a private consummation. Do you know in Jewish weddings, they would consummate the marriage during the wedding ceremony. The couple would go into what was called the the wedding tent or the wedding room. And when they would emerge, there would be cheering and rejoicing and celebrating because the public commitment had been followed by a private consummation. They were now husband and wife and all of the guests at the wedding would cheer because they were now man and wife. Now I want you to think with me about this for just a moment. Doesn't this sound very much like the very first marriage? Doesn't it? Turn with me back to Genesis chapter 2, and you will see that these verses in Proverbs and Malachi are clearly reflecting back on the very first marriage. And notice what verse 24 says, which is the foundational verse for everything the Bible teaches about marriage. Listen to what it says. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now that one flesh there is the kinship covenant where the husband and wife now become relatives. They are now a new family unit. Do you know the Net Bible put out by Dallas Seminary translates it this way, they become a new family. A new family. And since Eve was fashioned by out of the rib of Adam, he explained their one flesh relationship back in verse 23. Look at what he says. This is at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh is a euphemism for blood relatives. If you were here with your relatives today and you were introducing them to me, you might say to me, well, these are my blood relatives, and what would I know? I would know immediately that you share a kinship. So here this one flesh is referring to this kinship covenant where a husband and wife share the closest relationship possible that is sealed by that close and intimate sexual relationship in marriage. Now this being the case, this is why premarital sex And extramarital sex are such serious sins to be rejected. See, premarital sex takes sex without the commitment, doesn't it? 
That's what that is all about. It is the sex that is a selfish taking without the giving of the whole life. No wonder those that cohabit have a higher divorce rate than those who don't. All the studies reveal that. If you cohabit without that public commitment to that vow, you have chances of a higher divorce rate than those who don't. And it's very simple as to why. It's selfishness from the very start. When you say to somebody, I will take the sex from you, but I will not commit myself wholly to you, that is selfishness from the very start, and it is wrong. It is wrong. And then adultery strikes at the very heart of the one flesh relationship that created the kinship bond in the very beginning. And that's why from Genesis to Revelation, adultery is always treated as such a serious, grave, destructive sin. But here's what I want to say to us this morning. Both of those sins, premarital sex and extramarital sex, are forgivable. And adultery does not have to lead to divorce. In fact, many marriages survive it, and God graciously forgives, He heals, and He restores. And all of God's people said, Amen. But, not without deep pain, and not without hurtful consequences. And you talk to anyone who has survived adultery in their marriage, and they will tell you without question, far better to avoid it. Far better to avoid it. One of the things I want to do as we get to the end of this series on marriage is I want to preach a message, Lord willing, on how to affair-proof your marriage. And it comes from an incident in the life of Abraham and Sarah, where Abraham compromised his marriage. God graciously delivered them and forgave Abraham. And please hear that. Please hear that. If that has happened in your marriage, the very same thing God did with Abraham, God can do for you. He can graciously forgive, restore, and heal. And how good is God? God not only warns us about what can destroy our marriage, but he also shows us how we can avoid it. And if we have failed in that area, he also is willing to forgive us and to restore us. Is that not a good God? Yes, it is. Now this morning, if someone were to say to you after church, what did you learn from the pastor's message this morning? I hope you would say, well, I learned that marriage is based on a kinship covenant. And that's the foundation for all healthy and strong marriages. And if somebody said, well, what's a kinship covenant? I hope you would say, well, don't go ask Pastor Brian. Let me tell you. Now, here's what I want to ask this morning. 
do you think there are major implications of being in a kinship covenant with your spouse? You think there are? Of course there are. Of course there are. And this morning, I want to just get started with the first one. And then next week, when we continue with this message, we will pick up with those implications. But here's the first one. Marriage is your most important relationship. Marriage, if you are married, is your most important relationship. And I think we would all say that this clearly follows from this covenant understanding of marriage. If you are married, you are in a kinship covenant that is based on an oath. That is your closest relationship. And therefore, no one or nothing should come before that or interfere with that. By the way, wouldn't that change many marriages all by itself? Wouldn't it? So many marriages die simply because of neglect. Even Christian marriages. For every marriage that dies because of unrepentant, continued adultery, there are far more that die simply because of neglect. And so many people in their marriages forget who they said, I do to, and why they said it. Think with me this morning about that widower in Texas who wished to have 45 more years with the very same person. I sat there as a 24-year-old single person not having any understanding of what marriage would be like, and I said to myself, what in the world is your secret that you wished it would have gone 90 years? And no doubt this was a big part of it. No doubt in those 45 years, they never forgot who was most important in their lives. And it is clear from this understanding of the kinship covenant that marriage is your most important relationship. Last evening I came home for dinner and I said, uh, Ellen, you're the most important person in my life. She said to me, this has something to do with your sermon tomorrow, doesn't it? And I said to her, you're right. But I said, it's still true. It's still true. Let me ask you as married couples here this morning. When's the last time you told your spouse, you're the most important person in my life? And when's the last time you said, nothing or no one will come before you or interfere with my relationship 
with you. When's the last time you said that? You see, if the foundation for marriage is a covenant between husband, wife, and God, then there are profound implications. And one of those implications is marriage is your most important relationship. And for you to be fulfilled in that marriage, you need to believe that with all your heart and be committed to it. Now next Sunday we will come back and look a little more at these implications. And then in subsequent weeks we will look at the nature of marriage. But let's bow together, shall we, and thank the Lord for his teaching. Just before I pray, would you allow the Lord to speak to your own heart today? And if you are married to your spouse, and you're one of those couples who cannot say, my marriage is fulfilling. Somewhere along the way, one or both of you have deviated from God's plan. But would you say, thank you, Lord, that you are inviting me back. And I know it won't be easy. Marriage takes hard work. But I will follow your way. Help me, Lord. And maybe you're here today and you're like my adopted grandmother was. Try as though you might, you had a spouse who was unwilling. You wanted to follow God's plan, but your spouse refused. And maybe you're no longer with your spouse. Maybe you're in a new marriage. Maybe you have remained single. And please know that God understands. He loves you. He knows the pain that you've experienced. In some cases, the betrayal. And he has a special love for you. We know the Bible says that God has a special love for widows and orphans. And that may include you. And so as you pray for that wayward spouse, know that God in his tender love and mercy cares for you.
and ministers to you. Father, today I pray for all wayward spouses. I pray for all spouses who are hardened, indifferent, departed from your will, and are bringing pain into the lives of their marriages and families. And I ask, Father, that you will do whatever is necessary to break through to them, to help them to see the wrong and the hurt, and to bring them to the place of repentance. And Lord, for all of us, for me, help me to do those things toward my wife that I often neglect and set aside for other things. Forgive me, Father, and help me to be the husband you desire me to be. I pray the same for all the wives that are here today and who are listening as well. Thank you now, for Jesus' sake, amen.